Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. Our guest today is Ivan Ko. He is the co-founder and CEO of the Victoria Harbor Group, a firm that is building a new city for Hong Kong migrants. Full disclosure, I am on the founding team and the chief strategy officer of the Victoria Harbor Group. Welcome to the show, Ivan. Thanks for the invitation, Mark. So to start, can you just tell me, what are you building? Well, we are trying to develop uh, international charter cities in developed countries which are democratic and free so that Hong Kong people can migrate to and then live together and develop another strong economy for the host country. That's what we call the international charter city for Hong Kong people. Tell me more about this. So, right, like you're from Hong Kong. Where is the impetus to build this? There are a lot of free and democratic countries. So what are you thinking of in terms of getting a little bit more specific on what might be sort of considered for countries? Why is this necessary? What is the demand for these cities? Let's try to go into a little bit more detail. Okay. Well, first of all, as you might notice that Hong Kong has undergone a very unusual period over the last one year. And basically, uh, many Hong Kong people, due to the change in the governance of Hong Kong, many people are trying to leave Hong Kong, migrate to other countries, so that we can carry on with our lifestyle, which has been free and democratic in the past. And especially now with the application of the national security law in onto Hong Kong, I think the percentage of Hong Kong people trying to leave Hong Kong will be higher. But as you notice that uh, migrating to another country is quite difficult for individuals or for a family. So basically what we are trying to do is we try to build new city where we will build a city ground up and do a master plan and do a economic planning for the city so that Hong Kong people's strengths uh, skills and also our ability can be utilized to kind of build another economy together with the local people and local businesses to come into the charter city and then we can kind of live together and help each other and also to kind of in hope of building another economic miracle in the future. For the countries that we are choosing, it would be democratic and free and we would expect those countries, the government are law-abiding so that we can have our own chart, international charter city where we have our own charter, which have some principle and values which Hong Kong people would treasure, like family-friendly, environmental, sustainable, and uh, pluralistic and internationalism in addition to being democratic and free. Thanks. So I guess sort of to summarize, then the way this can be thought of is that there is going to be a likely a mass migration of Hong Kong people over the next 10, 15 years or so because of the changing conditions on the ground in Hong Kong. And so the Victoria Harbor Group is looking to basically build a city that can attract some of these people who might be migrating out of Hong Kong. That's exactly what we want to do. We want to provide an option so that Hong Kong people, when they migrate to these 
countries, then they can kind of live together, help each other and uh, solve problems for, for each other. So we can build another good neighborhood with the locals. Great. And so why would people want to move to the international charter city instead of moving to New York or Vancouver or London, all of which have a number of Hong Kong residents? Well, there are several reasons. The first one is not many people would have this kind of ability to be an investment immigrant. And some of them, they might be professional, but might not be able to do a kind of qualify for the immigration requirements. The second issue is that when you move to a new city or a new country, you worry about uh, your job opportunity or investment opportunities. But by creating a new city, we are going to create a lot of jobs in different industry sectors, like we might be building uh, residential offices, shopping center, hospital, private schools, you name it. So we will be creating a lot of jobs and investment opportunities for the migrating Hong Kong people and also for the local people. So in that case, you don't have to worry about you don't find a job in that country. And the second thing is if we can live together, then we can help each other because the problems that we are facing in a host country where we migrate to would be very similar uh, among the immigrants, immigrating uh, Hong Kong people. And the third one is if we can have a good master plan, then the city would be kind of brand new, but at the same time with very good planning because we are planning to build this city with modern advanced concept and with state of, I will not say that it is the state of the art, but the cutting edge urbanism so as to make the environment attractive for other people to move in apart from Hong Kong people. Cool, thanks. And so I'd definitely like to get into sort of what it means to build a new city in the state of the art urbanism and aspects like that. But I think before we get there, so you want to build an international charter city. So what does this actually mean? How many people? What are the timelines? How much land do you want? What does it actually mean to build an international charter city? Well, we have a very urgent timeline because we noticed that a lot of our friends and friends of friends, they really want to migrate to other countries as soon as they can. Primarily those with young children. They want to kind of move to those countries where they can, their children can carry on with good education. So basically, we have a timeline that we would like to secure the land for the first international charter city within the next six months. That means uh, within this year. And then we will start the planning and construction next year. And the first group of uh, first mover will be able to come into that international charter city to do the liaison work, planning work, and also to do the groundwork next year. So basically, we would like to have a very good support from the national government or the federal government and including the local community so that we can move things fast enough to meet the demand of the Hong Kong people. And if possible, we would like to develop one to two international charter cities in the next two, three years. Cool. And so what are the, the target populations for these cities? Well, it all depends on which country we are talking about. If it is a large country with a lot of people and a lot of land available, then we would like to have a bigger one where we can have almost like a 200 square kilometer of land. And then we would like to accommodate maybe 750,000 to a million 
people ultimately for the city, which half of that would be from Hong Kong, half of that would be from local. And if it is a smaller country, a younger one like Ireland, which we have always been, I mean, we have been talking to since last October, we are targeting at a city of the size of 50 square kilometer, which can accommodate ultimately 100,000 of population. So walk me through how this project got started, right? When did the impetus occur? What was the process to where you are now? And then what are the next steps that our listeners should be looking forward to? Well, I think basically we have a group of people where they are volunteers. Now we have 90 volunteers working together with us, with the core team of the Victoria Harbor Group. And we have been talking to several countries And uh, also at the same time, we are scouting sites in different countries, trying to compare which one would be the best option for us to start the first international charter city with the good conditions to be provided by the government and also by the local community. And certainly the site location is uh, primary, meaning that it has to be a good uh, location where it is within two hours drive to the nearby airport and also with good infrastructure nearby a major city so that we can save uh, costs of uh, building the uh, major infrastructure. And at the same time, the site uh, condition, the policy support to be provided by the local government and also the national government, those are the things that we would like to kind of seek the best provision. And also kind of we have also look at the cost of the land. Ideally, if we can have some land being granted to us by the government, and then in the future, government can share the revenue, and that would be perfect. Otherwise, we might go into joint venture with local government on a PPP model or with the private land owners. So those are the couple of things that we are planning to do. And depending on situation, as you might notice that To build a city is site-specific. That means you can only kind of determine what to do and what to negotiate with the government and the landowner once the site is being identified. Sure. And how do you go about building uh, political support for a project like this? One of the main challenges of charter cities is, and we saw this with Paul Romer in Madagascar and then in Honduras, is getting political buy-in because especially if you're thinking about legal autonomy for the city, but even if you're not thinking about substantial legal autonomy, just having a mass migration of people move to a country is challenging enough. Immigration is an issue these days, but then sort of allowing them to build a new city that is largely populated by them can be challenging to get a political buy-in. So how are you approaching that idea of getting this, the level of political support necessary to build a charter city? This is a very good question. We have been also thinking about that, uh, but then Throughout the past few months of contacting the governments from different countries, we found out that Hong Kong people are being welcomed by most of these governments, meaning that they think that Hong Kong people are hardworking, industrious, kind of uh, highly educated, and also many of us are being professional. Some of us are SME owners, business owners, and also we can bring in capital. And we understand the international standards, and we have been doing practices which are globally recognized most of the time. So I think Hong Kong people have already established a very strong branding, if you may say, or a soft power, which quite welcomed by these recipient or the host country. 
The other thing is we are also to our surprise that like UK, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson, he has announced that UK would like to extend the BNO to 2.9 million Hong Kong people and so that Hong Kong people can just migrate to and start uh, to work or study to live there. So this is something that I think this is going to be creating a lot of demand for international charter city. And in that case, international charter city is almost like a solution to a massive influx of migrating Hong Kong, uh, immigrating Hong Kong people to country like United Kingdom. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about how it might be an international charter city might be a, a potential solution for mass migration? What does that mean? Oh, okay. First of all, many of us have seen Chinatown in different countries, meaning that uh, previously in the last century, many Chinese moved to those countries and they start to live together in an existing community. But then most of the time, it makes the city kind of quite messy in terms of the people are disturbing the local neighborhood and there's no master planning. And so they just come in and live in a local community where already there were residents. And the second thing is throughout the past two or three decades, people from China and from Hong Kong, we moved to those countries and kind of make the property price quite high and sometimes unaffordable to the local. So what we are trying to do is we try to create a new city where originally there were no local residents or very little local residents, but there are good infrastructure nearby. And so we can do a good master plan, build a modern city with good infrastructure and planning. And then we plan about what economy to bring in where Hong Kong people are strong at and the host country would need this kind of economic input or talents. So basically, it is trying to kind of create a new environment where Hong Kong people can live together. And at the same time, we can build a strong economy out of this uh, new city. So in that case, we do not disturb the local neighborhood. We can build a new neighborhood with good relationship with the local people who move into the international charter city. And at the same time, we would be able to plan the economy, different industries like a manufacturing campus in the international charter city where the Hong Kong manufacturers can come in and establish their plant, factory manufacturing, so as to complement the supply chain in the host country. So those are the angles uh, why an international charter city is much better than just let the people of Hong Kong coming in and then live in those existing community or cities. Cool. And you've brought the idea of this master plan up several times. So when I think about new cities, there's sometimes this, I guess, tension. A lot of new cities can be overplanned to a certain extent. I was doing some consulting work on a new city planning in Kazakhstan. I remember saying, like, we can put the financial district here, we can put it here, we can have tall buildings, we can have medium-sized buildings. But if you look at New York's financial district, nobody planned that. What happened was 
they laid out a grid in the New York Commission of 1811, basically defined where the roads would be and where the buildings could be. They had relatively small lot sizes, and then people would just buy the lots, build, sell them, tear down the buildings, build new buildings. And that is how New York emerged. It was more of an emergent phenomena. Well, if you look at some of the master planned cities today, Songdo in South Korea, it has a lot of green space, but it's not really a pleasant place to live. So when thinking about building a new city with the master plan, how do you think about this master plan and balancing the sort of emergent nature of a city with the importance of having a degree of understanding of what's going on and, and its development? Thanks for sharing. That is a very valid argument about building a new city with a master plan. First of all, we are not doing planning economy. Meaning that the time when we are doing the master planning, we are also doing the economic planning. But we don't mean to be kind of plan the economy. But at the same time, we are just kind of look at what Hong Kong people are strong at and who would be the immigrants from Hong Kong and what does this local community needs and what does the host country need. And so we will plan different industry sectors to be developed in this international charter city. But as you might know, also notice that there are several things that we can do. First of all, is Hong Kong people are very strong. I mean, we are very strong in real estate development, city development. So I think we can bring in some know-how or methodology or kind of system where we can carefully plan the city with phasing out the development and also kind of taking care of the market demand instead of we just try to build a city and then put money in and then try to do whatever we want to do. We would always be looking at the market demand and also the economic driving forces in the new city. And the second is for a city to be successful or to be very popular in the future, it has to have kind of an evolution process. I mean, Rome was not built in one day, so we understand that totally. So we are not rushing into putting all the money in and then build a city all over in five years. And in five years, the city will be completely built. We are not saying that. In fact, the immigration process might take, as you said, 10, 15 to 20 years. And for the city to be mature, it might take even longer, some 30, 40 or 50 years later. So what I have said about the population, the city size, those are the ultimate numbers that we are targeting at. So we would be very carefully not to do planning economy, but to plan the economic activities. And at the same time, we look at how the city can be made attractive, not just to Hong Kong people, but to the local businesses and people in the host country and to kind of make it step-by-step step development of the city. So that's why we think that to accommodate the or to satisfy the demand of all the people from Hong Kong who want to migrate to other countries, we might need more than one international charter city. So we are targeting at several international charter cities in different countries. Cool. And so you talked a little bit about this idea of I guess, economic planning to a certain extent. So how do you think about 
what industries to target. Hong Kongers, for example, Hong Kong is one of the top three financial centers in the world. It was a manufacturing center up until sort of the, the mid-90s. I remember when I was a kid, I would open toys and it would say made in Hong Kong and now everything says made in China. But Hong Kongers do own a lot of and invest in a lot of the factories in, in Guangdong of which Shenzhen is a part. So there is still a strong sort of manufacturing tradition. So when evaluating potential sites, how do you think about how to think about sort of economic planning, what industries to focus there, how the complements, how the talents of the, the Hong Kong people might complement the needs for the, the local economy? Oh, well, as I said, this ICC is site-specific. All the questions you raised was site-specific, meaning that if it is a uh, ICC in, for example, in Ireland, then we notice that uh, Ireland, after Brexit, they would be able to have a share of the international financial services market in Europe. So basically, Hong Kong is also very strong in financial services. So that can be one industry we can help Ireland to make it stronger. The second industry that we might be able to put into Ireland would be manufacturing and also medical and healthcare, which Hong Kong has been very strong in public health. And also education is another sector. But if we, for example, if the ICC is in United States, then it might be different that financial services, I mean, New York is already a very strong number one international financial center. So in that case, Hong Kong immigrants might not be able to kind of contribute to United States in that sense. So financial sector, financial industry might not be a sector or an industry which we would like to build in the international charter well, city. Hey, doesn't the West Coast need a financial center? So California, Oregon, Washington, if you're listening, <laughs> let's 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 compete with New York. Yeah, I heard that. I heard that. And we heard that a lot of tech financial transactions were being made in Palo Alto. And I think that is very interesting because I heard discussions about having a second financial center in the West Coast, in Silicon Valley, where the transaction most of the time, they are big amount and can be quite very attractive. But at the same time, they might not be served well by the Wall Street. This is uh, experimental. This can be explored, but it has to be, I mean, the international charter city in that case has to be in the West Coast, whether we would be able to identify a site big enough for us to set up this kind of international charter city to kind of a pioneer in the establishment of a financial center for the tech industry in the West Coast. That is very dependent on the situation. We don't know. I mean, it would be very interesting to do so. Yeah. I mean, to me, just I think from an American perspective, two of the things that are, I think, fascinating about this project one is the financial potential financial sector on the West Coast. San Francisco and the Silicon Valley is already creating one to a certain extent. There's something called the Long-Term Stock Exchange. It's backed by Andrews and Horowitz, one of the best-known venture capital firms. And they're basically trying to create a stock exchange where voting rights are dependent on how long you own the stock. Because there's a critique of some stock exchanges where it's just a bunch of day traders who aren't thinking long-term. But if voting rights are distributed to a certain extent based on length of ownership, then you might be able to align decisions better over the longer term. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but it's at least a, I think, innovative way of approaching. 
And obviously, Hong Kong has a lot of financial talent. And so if you really want to supercharge a financial sector, I think creating an international charter city within sort of somewhere on the West Coast where it can interface with sort of the Silicon Valley tech world well would be a, a very interesting, I think, approach. My feel is that one of the challenges is that the West Coast, at least particularly San Francisco and the Bay Area, is very resistant to building new things. The, the politics are to a certain extent, kind of broken there. You uh, mean anti-development? Yeah, anti-development. So they've declared laundromats as historic buildings to prevent them from being redeveloped into apartments. Um, and that makes, I think, getting the political support there a little bit more challenging than other parts of the US or other parts of the world. Well, I think, to be frank, International Charter City, I think this is a very pioneering and new concept and a lot of people they have never heard about it and up to today i think there has not been any uh, case which has already been successful for an international charter city so we are already in itself international charter city is already very innovative and so it would be very good if we can integrate into the international charter city some pioneering concept as you might you just mentioned of this long-term stock exchange i think that should be perfectly fit into international charter city that we would like to build but certainly if we are invited by interested party from the west coast to consider and they have land available to develop an international charter city there we would like to have this kind of new ideas and new system new practices where we can implement or experiment or explore in this international charter city. Because we are not trying to replicate a Hong Kong, we are trying to build this city in a modern, advanced, the city of the 21st century. So anything that is new, advanced and good for the local people and good for the economy with new ideas, we welcome that. And that should be kind of a perfect partnership with the International Charter City. Yeah. So if any of our listeners are in Silicon Valley or related and want to help out supercharging a new financial center, please feel free to get in contact. And one of the things you mentioned, this hasn't been done before. So I do want to talk about sort of the inspiration for this idea. But before, I guess, going into that, the other, I think, thing, at least from an American perspective, that is, I think, quite interesting there's one, the, the sort of financial center Silicon Valley aspect, but the second strength of the Hong Kong people is in manufacturing. And it's been a long, an ongoing debate in the U.S. revolving around manufacturing where there's been a sort of critique of globalization that we've outsourced a lot of our manufacturing capabilities to China, actually, with the F-35 jet, it's the new fighter jet that, I don't know, they spent like a trillion dollars developing it or something. There's actually like two or three parts that they're buying from China because they basically couldn't source them in the U.S., which is kind of, I don't know, silly in my opinion to buy parts for a defense weapon is from a geopolitical rival. But also just thinking about machine tools, the tools that are used to build other tools. I believe there was a quote from Tim Cook, who runs Apple, 
where in the US, it's hard to fill a meeting with sort of conference room with machine tool engineers. And in China, you can fill a stadium with machine tool engineers. So in terms of thinking about how to revive American manufacturing, to me, one of the obvious sort of short term moves is you just import a bunch of Hong Kongers who have a lot of skills and talents in manufacturing. And then that saves you the like 10 year whatever requirement of training all of this new generation of workers, which is time consuming and expensive. And why do that when you can just sort of import a bunch of Hong Kongers to do it for you? Yeah, I think that is uh, very good because in the last century, in the 60s, 70s and 80s, Hong Kong was very strong in manufacturing and we were almost number one in garment manufacturing. And also we were one of the four Asian tigers. So basically, we have been very strong in manufacturing since then. But then later on, we move our factories to the southern China. But up to today, we still have at least 35,000 factories owned by Hong Kong manufacturers just in Dongguan, one of the county in Guangdong province. So basically, we do have a lot of manufacturing entrepreneurs based in Hong Kong, live in Hong Kong, but their factories are in southern China. And the operating environment in China for factory manufacturers, very, very difficult. If you are profitable, you are lucky. And so basically, I think bringing the Hong Kong manufacturers know-how and also the capital, the system, the equipment to United States or to other countries where they have a space for us to fill is very good because we noticed that the countries like United States, you have been very advanced in information technology and you have invested a lot in information technology in the past two, three decades. But in terms of this traditional manufacturing, manufacturing which require physical machinery and production, I think United States or some developed countries have been kind of not putting a lot of resources or efforts in, except, for example, Germany, they are still very strong in this. So I think it is a perfect match if Hong Kong manufacturers can set up their plant production in ICC and then to kind of uh, supplement or to complement the missing link in the host country. That would make a perfect match. And Hong Kong manufacturers are very, very good at organizing all these kind of uh, different resources and talents and engineers. So I guess then um, putting on my hat as an American, I think I want the Hong Kongers to come here. I think I sometimes like to joke that the Hong Kongers have a thing or two to teach the Americans both about protesting as well as about policing. I mean, I think we all saw the, the umbrella protests and how they were very very civil and very peaceful. And also it's changed a little bit recently as the sort of Hong Kong police force has basically been taken over by mainland China. But historically, the Hong Kong police are generally much more peaceful compared to American police. So what will it take to get an international charter city in the US? Well, I think it is always good that we can, people from Hong Kong, if I may say our soft power is very strong in the sense of we can bring some Asian way of doing things and Asian values, which are not totally just Asian, but also with a lot of Western favor in the sense of the system that we have in Hong Kong is quite Western. It's uh, based on common law 
and a lot of the system were left from the British colony period. So we have all sort of this kind of uh, practices and system, which can easily fit into Western countries, developed countries. But at the same time, we do it in an Asian way. For example, we work very hard, even it's nine to five working hour, we might work until seven before we leave the office with overtime charge. And also we get things done very efficiently and Hong Kong people are being kind of very straightforward instead of kind of wasting your time. So we do have some something that match well the way that you do things. And certainly we also appreciate that you have very strong R&D and very creative thinking. And also you have a very good system. So I think it would be a very good combination of the two if we are given the chance. Yeah, I think that sounds great, though. I guess one of my other questions is because American politics and a lot of Western politics are going through, I think, substantial changes. We've seen, for example, Donald Trump got elected. He's the first American president who is not either a general during a war or a former politician. He was a real estate developer and also better known as a reality TV host. Yeah. And we've seen also, for example, recently, a lot of protests and the the culture wars have, I think, largely intensified in the U.S. as well as in other sort of Western countries where it looks like there's going to be, I don't know, maybe 10 years of sort of disruption, hopefully, before things calm down a little bit and get back on course. And the more pessimistic side of me worries that it's going to be a little bit worse in the U.S. than in other countries. So do you think about, I guess, the sort of given that we're not in a stable period of politics in the West either, how does that factor into your decision making when evaluating potential host countries? Well, I think this is the best timing because, first of all, the demand from Hong Kong people is very, very strong and very urgent. And the second thing is the weakening or the kind of slowing down of the economy in the West or in those developed countries like United States. I think we can just come in and help and contribute. But when the economy is very good in your country and you are enjoying very good time, the things that we can contribute might be, the effect might be very little or insignificant. So basically, I think right now, many governments are trying to uplift the economy, revive the economy quickly by starting some exciting new projects, mega projects. And International Charter City is an ideal solution. I mean, a a very good recipe for that because it is a big investment. It brings in a lot of talents and capital. And at the same time, it creates a lot of forward-looking stories every day. When you wake up, you are thinking about the city, how it will be developed in the next two, three years, and where to attract more people to come in. So these kind of things is very, very encouraging in an economy which has been badly hurt. So I think this is just the perfect timing. And we are not worried about the situation where the economy is not too good now, and then the social situation is a little bit uncertain. I think for these developed countries, you always have a tough time or a good time. This is almost like uh, some kind of tough time that you will go through once in a while. So I think International Charter City would be a kind of a perfect project for these countries to 
revive or to uplift their economy again. Yeah, I guess your perspective is maybe a little bit different when your uncles or your grandparents escaped from the Chinese Civil War or communist China and are now sort of are seeing substantial restrictions on some freedoms that you've grown accustomed to. Then some of the challenges that sort of dominate the discourse in the West might not seem as pressing or as urgent. Let's go, I guess, into kind of the history of this idea. Where do you draw inspiration from? It can be recent history in the last 10 or 20 years, or it can be going further back because, I mean, mass migrations have happened throughout human history. Sometimes it's organized, sometimes it's less organized. Sometimes there is a plan on the other side. Sometimes there isn't much of a plan. So where do you sort of look at these historical examples and what do you see as lessons to draw from them and where do you get inspiration from? Well, first of all, the idea of developing international charter city was almost like seven or eight years ago when I went to East Malaysia frequently and trying to develop an international charter city for baby boomers because Asian baby boomers are going into the retirement age and a lot of us have gone through this urban life for the past 30, 40 years in their career. And so some of them, they just wanted to go for kind of a natural environment, farming, doing agriculture, growing plants for them, their own consumption. So that was the idea. So at that time, I studied International Chartered City proposed by Paul Roma. And I found it fascinating because he was suggesting that our people can just move in if they like the charter. If they don't, they move out. And I think that is very interesting. And, and he certainly used Hong Kong as the example. But then I think at that time, some of our friends are really interested in this kind of international charter city to be developed in the East Malaysia, where people can move in and have their own farmland and their own ranch. But I found out that the demand is not certain. And don't know how many of these baby boomers would really like to buy the land and build their house. And the second thing is about this unfortunate MH370 airplane, which disappeared. So later on, that plan was dropped. And last year, at the peak of this protest against this extradition law, extradition bill in Hong Kong around September, Simon Sham, my friend, called me up one day and said, why not we develop a project for Hong Kong people to migrate to? Because at the time, we already know that a lot of expatriates and our friends are thinking of moving away from Hong Kong. So I told him, why not we just do an international charter city? So that came the idea of developing this uh, Victoria Harbour Group to develop several international charter cities in different countries. But basically, I think what we want to do is, uh, first of all, we see the demand is already there. Not like the baby boomer international charter city that I wanted to do seven or eight years ago. The demand for Hong Kong people wanting to leave Hong Kong, migrate to other countries, is solid and also very strong in massive number. And that is the, the most important requirements for developing a new city, that you will have the residents, you will have people moving in, you will have uh, businesses 
moving in. So that's the most important thing. So after that, we just have to identify the right country and the right, the good location of where to develop the international charter city. And then we solve other problems when we face, like the master planning, the investment raising fund, trying to do investment promotion to attract businesses to come in. We can do it step by steps. To me, I think the the two, I guess, historical examples that come most to mind when thinking about what you are doing is one, Israel. So, I mean, Israel was created basically by a mass migration of Jews, primarily from Eastern Europe. It was over a much longer time horizon, sort of your thinking of, and it was over a larger region, right? The Hong Kong people are relatively concentrated, but it was a people with a relatively distinct identity many of whom saw the writing on the wall, saw that they weren't being treated fairly, and so decided to go to Palestine to basically create a state that they would be allowed to sort of live the lives that they saw fit, obviously with sort of the caveat that unfortunately some of that process has created a lot of conflict with the Palestinian people. And then I think the other example is Salt Lake City, which was founded by the Mormons, So there was a basically mass migration of a people, the Mormons, who, right, I mean, they're not really as distinct as the Hong Kong people or the the Jews. Mormonism is sort of an outgrowth of mainline Protestantism in the 19th century, but they developed a distinct identity and they were persecuted for it, moved several times before basically moving out west to build a city where they would be able to live the lives that they wanted to. And so that's, to me, one of the hardest challenges of starting a city. It's how do you get that critical mass of people there? And historically, it's often been there's an economic reason. There might be a natural port or there might be a mine, something that gets people living in that area where eventually enough people live there for it to become self-sustaining. Alternatively, you can be a government. And if you're a government, you can just make a bunch of people, bureaucrats, move to a city and then you can get a population. So that's like Brasilia or Abuja are examples of government-built cities. But here you basically have a mass migration of people who want to see a change in their lifestyle in their home in Hong Kong and so want to be able to continue to live. Yeah, I think your analogy of the two cases are very interesting. But first of all, let me clarify that uh, we are not building a nation. We are just building new cities. So the Israel case was interesting, but it's different. I would kind of look at it from another angle, historic angle, that now Hong Kong people is facing a situation where Hong Kong will be changed in a very serious way. So we have a lot of Hong Kong people wanting to live in a short period of time. And then we are in pursuit of freedom and democracy which is a little bit similar to the pilgrim and the Puritan who left Europe in pursuit of religious freedom. And they sailed on two Mayflower and came to United States with charters, either from the shipping company or from the royal family. And they established their city in New England and also another city. So Basically, I think it is the same that whenever there is such a big migration, there was something that these immigrants or migrants, they are looking for something. They are in pursuit of something. And this time is the Hong Kong people in pursuit of freedom and democracy, lifestyle, 
So this is something very, very interesting in the perspective of history, human histories. So there was a Telegraph article recently which interviewed you and me as well about uh, the Victoria Harbor Group and your plans. And it took a somewhat skeptical tone, which I think is to a certain extent kind of natural because this is a big project. We haven't really seen projects this big in a few decades. So I think there are going to be a lot of skeptics who will say, okay, well, like this is cool, this is interesting, but how does this actually work in practice? What do you say to those people who are skeptical of the ability to execute on a project this grand, and then particularly the ability of you and your team to be able to execute on a project this grand? Oh, I think skepticism is always normal. I would take it as normal because, uh, as I said before to my friends, most of the time when people tell you when airplane was not invented, you can't imagine and people would criticize you as crazy or you are out of your mind. You, you suggest that there is a big piece of steel carrying a few hundred people flying the sky in a speed faster than a car. I mean, in that case, you just think that this guy is a nut and crazy a cycle. But when the airplane is being invented and it's flying, it's making the whole world travel much easier, less costly and much shorter period of time, then people are enjoying it and the globalization came. So I think basically today when we talk about this international charter city or we want to build several international charter city, people also become very suspicious where comes the land, the immigrants and also the money. But we think that the basic fundamental is already there, that a lot of Hong Kong people, massive number of them, of us are wanting to leave and wanting to migrate to other countries. And there exist countries where Hong Kong people would uh, like to live in, which are democratic and free and law, the government is law abiding. So those fundamental factors are there. The only thing is we have to convince the host country government, the local government, and the local community and identify the land and then we have to raise money and do the master planning. So I think we noticed that uh, there are a lot of different hurdles or difficulties that we have to overcome, but it doesn't mean that it can't be implemented or it can't be realized. I do believe that with the strong cohesiveness of Hong Kong people in pursuit of democracy and freedom and to carry on our lifestyle in other environment, in a new environment, I think this can be done. Yeah, I think so. I think that analogy with technology isn't exactly right, because at least with technology, with the airplane, for example, the Wright brothers didn't need the buy-in from the government. If the Wright brothers needed buy-in from the government, we might still be riding on horses today. And to me, the, the primary challenge with charter cities isn't technological, it is political. It is getting this political buy-in that you mentioned. And so it requires, to a certain extent, like there will be skepticism, but if you're developing a technology, the skepticism doesn't necessarily directly affect you so long as you can basically keep your funding streams alive and keep developing it. But with a charter city, if skepticism is the general mood, you'll never be able to get started because you'll never be able to acquire land. You'll never be able to get visas, sort of do the things necessary to build this new city. Uh, well, I think the difficulties in these two situations are different, but the degree of difficulties would be the same, meaning that they might face some technological difficulties or funding difficulties, and we face some political difficulties and 
social difficulties, including uh, also the funding difficulties. So I think this analogy is something which can be crazy or unbelievable. Today can be realized in the future if we can kind of keep our course and steer clear of this skepticism and take them as kind of a part of the contribution to our idea. I don't think this skepticism is something that we look at it negatively. Rather, we take them as positive contribution to the momentum that we are building up. I think you might be much more diplomatic than I am. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. Um, I'm just uh, telling the truth how I feel. Yeah. So one thing is in a lot of Charter Cities projects, we've seen sort of different variations of teams. Paul Romer has an academic background. He also has a business background that not that many people know about. We've seen a teams approach this in a much more startup-like manner. Teams approach this in a much more real estate approach. So, right, it's not just you. You have a, a team behind you. And just to mention it again, yeah, I'm Chief Strategy Harbor, Officer of the Victoria Harbor Group. So how do you go about sort of putting together the team to actually be able to execute on this? I think that is very important premises that we have to have is a strong team. First of all, we work together with some of our volunteers and also we reach out to Mark to kind of seek help in terms of the methodology of how to do International Charter City because you have been the founder and CEO of Charter City Institute and you can you have already dealt with a lot of different governments and try out different plans and different way of doing Charter City. And then we have the luxury of some of these uh, good talents, people whom we know, like our chief financial officer, Samuel Lai. He was the chief executive of one of the two railway companies in Hong Kong. And so he knows infrastructure, city planning. And also we have another chief development officer who used to be doing city planning, economic planning for cities in mainland China for the past 10 years for AECOM, one of the largest consulting firm in this area. And we have Kelvin Koch, who is our chief investment officer, and he has been doing global investment for one of the largest family in Hong Kong. So I think we have a very good combination of core team, which will allow us to do the international charter city. We're putting it on the right track, but we are not trying to do it in a traditional real estate development way. We are trying to blend together real estate with technological startup kind of way of doing things. So that's why we have been trying to raise money both from Hong Kong and Silicon Valley because we noticed that a lot of investors in Silicon Valley are very innovative. They like ideas. People like Larry Page. He said that Google would invest in ideas which or products which does not exist today, which is totally amazing. And we noticed that in Silicon Valley, you have this kind of very, very kind of adventurous investors who like innovative or even pioneer idea or ideas with, which have never been heard before or projects which can be very difficult to execute. But if it is successfully executed, it can be a hundred times or a thousand times rewarding. So I think this is uh, 
the way that we want to carry out the Victoria Harbour Group to implement the international charter city as a hybrid between a technological startup and a real estate development or a city development business. And to me, I think that's interesting. Just one of the things that I found fun sort of talking and getting to know you is just, I think some of people who are in the Silicon Valley space take it for granted a little bit, the investor mindset there and realizing how I think different it is from a lot of traditional investor mindsets where they're a little bit more conservative. They expect a sort of tried and true business plan, aren't willing to bet on big ideas. It sort of makes you appreciate, I think, how different and unique Silicon Valley can be. And yeah, I think you're sort of right in this blending this, I guess, how we're trying to blend this real estate and startup mentality with the idea of, in, I think, the early stages, it being a startup, there's a relatively, I mean, I actually don't think it's that high risk, but it's, I think, higher risk compared to a lot of real estate projects, at least when after you have the land. And then as we go down the sort of stages, after we acquire the land, after we start the build out, then it gets de-risked, and then it becomes a little bit more analogous to a real estate project. Yeah, yeah. I think the traditional real estate businesses, first of all, you get the land, and then you kind of develop it, and then you shift the risks from the developer all the way to different parties, including the purchaser that are all the tenants. So that's the traditional way of doing real estate. But for international charter city, no one has done that before. There is no the track record or template what, which you can follow. So I think we can just kind of do it in our own way and taking into account or incorporating uh, very advanced ideas like the technological technology startup or Silicon Valley's kind of ideas to kind of make this concept of ICC into real projects with land and then with citizens and businesses moving in. So I think that is a very adventurous, but very attractive and rewarding path. Cool. And so how has this project so far been received by the people of Hong Kong? Oh, we've received a lot of attention, media attention, and also people uh, start talking about it. And that is also our purpose because initially when we had this first interview, when I had the first interview published in one of the most popular newspapers in Hong Kong, Apple Daily, in January, people were quite skeptical, kind of thinking, oh, you are doing a SimCity. <laughs> and at that time, we call ourselves SimCity because we want to make it easy for people to understand that we are building a new city growing up. But then they think, oh, it's political. It's kind of something that Chinese government won't like it and you are violating the law, that sort of thing. But then the more we talk about it, the more interview I receive and uh, people start to understand that, oh, you are just building a new city. We are not encouraging people to migrate. We just provide a solution for them to live together and to adjust easily to the migration. And now they understand this is something that is nothing political. It's just a daily life of many governments that they have to build new cities. So basically, we are undergoing a public articulation process where we want many people, more and more Hong Kong people, to talk about building international charter city in different countries. And they can talk about how to do it, how the city can be managed in the future. And at the same time, 
what do they want from this kind of international charter city? Should it be very beautiful, very modern, or is uh, like a garden city where we have a lot of greenery and plants, or they want it to be very technologically advanced? So I think we have received a lot of attention and discussions, and throughout the past few weeks, I've been invited to radio programs, newspaper interview, video interview, and so it's amazing. And I find that even in the developed countries where we have telegraph and also radio programs in Ireland, they are interested in knowing what our project is or about, and also how are we going to implement the project in their country. And especially after this coronavirus pandemic crisis in many countries, many governments are very keen and desperate to kind of restart their economy with big tech attractive projects, which are big enough and bold enough to arrest people's attention and capture investments and attract businesses. So I think International Charter City is just the right point of time to launch. And how has Beijing reacted? Have they reacted? Because some people, for example, might think that Beijing would view such a project negatively and hostilely and could perhaps even prevent the Hong Kong people from leaving. So how do you view their reaction to this? Okay. First of all, I have not heard from Beijing about any comment on our project, even though we have already kind of publicized our project quite massively in the past few weeks. But up to this moment, I have not heard about any comment from the central government. Maybe they are busy with restarting their economy and also the national security law. But at the same time, from our analysis, I think it is not political and they should not get sensitive or critical about our project. Because first of all, we are talking to foreign governments, but our project is not related to Hong Kong matters. It's just related to Hong Kong people who have plans to migrate to other countries. And we are asking for land and concessions and government support to get the land and build a city in other countries, not to mess up with Hong Kong matters or to kind of interfere with matters in the mainland China. So we believe that the Beijing government look at it clearly, then they would understand that our action, our new city building, has nothing to do with matters in Hong Kong and also business in mainland China. It's just on the opposite. We are doing things in other countries for the benefits of Hong Kong people. So I don't see how ICC would affect Hong Kong, except that we are just providing a solution for migrating Hong Kong migrants, immigrants. But having said that, if a large number of Hong Kong people leave Hong Kong in the future, for example, next five years, 10 years, 15 years, it will kind of create a lot of vacancies in Hong Kong. But I think that is almost like nothing to the Chinese government because they have 1.4 billion people in mainland China. And Hong Kong used to be the pearl, if not the diamond in the whole China, that every mainlanders, almost all of them, would like to come to Hong Kong, live in Hong Kong, buy a property here, stay in Hong Kong, work in Hong Kong, and do business in Hong Kong. So I don't think the brain drain in the next 5, 10 years or 15 years would have any effects. And any vacancy, any capital brought away, or any position being 
uh, left empty by migrating Hong Kong people will be filled up in no time by mainland businesses and mainland people. So I don't see how the ICC would affect Hong Kong or mainland China. Okay. And how do you see the migration progressing, particularly to the ICC? Are you targeting young people first, old people first? Are you going to help with the migration in any regards? Are there any sort of programs that you're thinking about setting up? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We would like to, uh, first of all, our Victoria Harbour Group, we would have 50% of our share being owned by a foundation. The foundation is to accept donation globally. And at the same time, in the future, when the ICC is being built into operation mode, then there will be dividend from the Victoria Harbour Group to be distributed to the foundation. And the foundation would kind of provide subsidies or financial assistance to public services in the international charter city. For example, the public health, subsidized education, that sort of thing. So basically, this is something that we have in mind that we would like to help people easily adjust to the local environment, including to provide uh, subsidized vocational training or job placement, this kind of uh, services and social functions. And during this uh, development period, from the time we have the first site of ICC being secure, then we would like to first of all help some young people, fresh grads and uh, young professionals to come over to the International Charter City sites to do all the all kinds of liaison work, groundwork, to do research, to understand the local community, build relationship, go to Chamber of Commerce, local Chamber of Commerce, and understand what business opportunities or investment opportunities or job opportunities would be available for migrating Hong Kong people. And at the same time, we want the some retired volunteers, baby boomers, retirees, to come and serve as volunteers to help lead or manage these young people, how to carry out their work. And we are thinking about a, a few thousand of these young people in the beginning to do this, what we call the first mover work. And then later on, when there are more people, more Hong Kong people trying to migrate to this country, but they need the financial assistance or subsidize accommodation or subsidize education, then this foundation with donations from around the world, we would like to kind of help these people to be who might not be qualified to migrate, but we would like to help them to come into this international charter city. Because to make a, a new city successful, we have to kind of have a wide spectrum of residents living in this city not just mid-age, well-off people, but also people who are retired, people who are fresh graduate or even students and young professionals, businessmen. So we would like to kind of make it more comprehensive so that the whole ecosystem can be developed very soon. Interesting. So the term charter city as it's typically used, for example, by Paul Romer and also by the Charter Cities Institute, refers to a new city with substantial legal autonomy, maybe a blank slate in law to start from. And Hong Kong is held up as one of the historic examples of this, 
where they emerged basically from an impoverished village after World War II to become a global manufacturing hub and then a global financial center because of this degree of local government. I forget the technical term. It was either a crown colony or a crown dependency or maybe both at different times. I think it was a royal pattern. Okay. Are you asking for some local autonomy? Obviously, the Hong Kong people are quite good at self-government. So, I mean, maybe they could teach the U.S. something about that. But is that something that you're interested in? How are you weighing that option with sort of the other needs of land acquisition and obviously given the political challenges of getting a degree of local autonomy? Uh, Well, I think it would be situational. That means it depends on which state that we are in and what would be available from that state. And at the same time, I think we are very flexible in that sense that if we are being given more autonomy, that would be good because we can manage a city in the way that we want and also make it attractive for other people to move in. But if we are just given a lesser degree of self-governance or autonomy, then we can live with it because uh, basically if we can lay down some charters, principles and values where everyone in this city would be aware of and they treasure, then already that is the basic minimum. And if we can elect our mayor, I mean, choose our city manager, that is already another achievement of this international charter city. And we don't have a template or kind of requirement one, two, three that we have to negotiate. Definitely we need this or that. No, I think it's very situational and we are ready to discuss and negotiate with whichever state would welcome us. And we think that city is suitable, then we enter into this kind of discussion. Cool. So the last few questions. You've talked a little bit about sort of building an advanced city, integrating new technology, particularly in the U.S., right? No new cities have really been built in the last 40 years. It's interesting, at least in the U.S., if you look at the East Coast versus the West Coast, East Coast cities tend to be a little bit more dense on the West Coast, Los Angeles. I sometimes describe it as a giant parking lot with some houses because there's a lot of cars, a lot of highways. So how do you integrate this cutting-edge urbanism? How do you integrate new technologies? Well, I think that's a very good question that we definitely have the answer, but the answer might not be final. We are also kind of exploring different ideas of how to make this city advance modern and the city of the 21st century. Primarily, we would like to see some technological improvement and also environmentally friendly uh, features and also practices. For example, the zero carbon emission or carbon neutral positive energy. And also we would like to have more plantation greenery. And we might also like to have shared use space for car, pedestrian and bicycle. We would like to encourage walkability and cyclability. Maybe on the road, there would be just autonomous car or personal transportation mode. But for other field-driven cars, maybe they have to go underground. And once they enter into this charter city, those are some... Banned uh, cars. <laughs> <laughs> or we are or on the ground level, maybe we have some electric train or different fast moving mode of transportation which can be personalized and also 
we would like to see things like a very innovative property design because as you might not notice that in Hong Kong, the building code has been almost like freeze since the 50s or 60s in the last century. So in Hong Kong, if you have a very crazy or innovative building shape, you submit for approval from the building department. For sure, it will not be approved. So basically, we see Hong Kong buildings are very typical, just high rise and then maximize the gross floor area, curtain wall. And that's almost like the same formula we have for every new buildings in Hong Kong. So we would like to have some good urban design, beautiful buildings. And at the same time, some of the infrastructure can be beautiful too. I mean, we can beautify bridges, roads, and encourage less use of cars or vehicles, more encouragement of interaction among neighbors. Because Hong Kong, in the past two, three decades, uh, no, three, four decades, we have been developing this vertical community, meaning that we always have high-rise, even residential building. We have easily, even public housing, we have a 40-something story to 60 stories. So we are putting all the residents or the community in a vertical form. And we have this discussion that vertical community destroys the neighborhood. So now people living in high-rise building, they don't know the neighbors right next door. And whenever we get down to take a lift to get down to the street level, some of our neighbors would like to wait until the other neighbors have already gone down with the lift and before they get get out of their door. So it is becoming very discouraging and we don't have enough open space in Hong Kong where neighbors can interact with each other, children can play with each other and public space in Hong Kong are being overmanaged. There are always security guards, uh, property management people looking after you, almost like uh, every single action that you have in their venue, they try to scrutinize. So, I mean, this kind of thing is very unpleasant and we would like to have a more free and enjoyable environment in the international charter city. Yeah, I think that's interesting. To me, some of the key, I guess, issues for making a city livable are, I think the level of density is important and doesn't have to be high rises per se. If you look at, for example, Paris or Barcelona, those are two of the more dense cities in the world, but downtown Paris, it caps out at about six stories. It's just a lot of six-story buildings that allow for a fairly high level of density. So even if you don't know your neighbors, you're walking on the streets enough and you interact there. And then I think the other thing that's quite important that might be somewhat underrated is street size, where our streets these days are basically built for automobiles. The person is seen as an intrusion on the street rather than the car being an intrusion on sort of the person. It's interesting, if you look back at early videos of the 20th century, when cars were very rare, people walk around like they own the streets because they did own the streets. And so you can, I think, return to that. They've been doing this in sort of Northern Europe a little bit, where they, instead of having sidewalks, the entire street is just the same level, which basically forces the cars to drive much slower because it kind of gives ownership of the streets to people. You see images of Amsterdam from 40 years ago or so, where there were a lot of cars, and now Amsterdam has one of the highest biking sort of populations in the world. 
and basically figuring out how to maybe you shrink the street size. Maybe you just make it cobblestone so the cars don't go very fast. Maybe you just put like a very high tax on cars driving in certain areas. So that discourages sort of use of those areas. I mean, I'm not sure exactly what the solution is, but yeah, I mean, to me sort of returning to this idea of a like, yeah, nice kind of walkable city where people see their neighbors, where there's these spontaneous interactions, where you can go to the park and hang out and obviously keeping all of these things while you need uh, property prices to be relatively low to make it accessible for everybody, I think is really crucial to a thriving city. Yeah, these are all the uh, right elements, meaning that I think basically we should kind of rethink the way we can enjoy our neighborhood and enjoy the community. Because if it is still a car being given the privilege, then most of the time the space will be occupied by them. And as you might notice that in Hong Kong, there's no way to do your cycling inside the city because all the car drivers think that you are the nuisance. And it can be very dangerous to cycle around in Hong Kong. And I have to declare my interest that I am a, a very active cyclist. And I also noticed that from my living in Hong Kong for the past 60 years, I think basically when you walk in a city or you cycle in a city, you start to learn about the city and you can interact easily and you know the neighborhoods. But when you drive around, no way. I mean, you just go point to point and you don't understand the city. You don't look at the shops. You don't look at the people. You just try to get your way from your origin to the destination. And that is not good at all for building relationship with your neighbors. So I think to appreciate your city too. So I think we have to make the city enjoyable. And at the same time, people find it very livable. And it can also improve our health by walking and cycling. Cool. So I've got one more question. But before that, let me ask if there are any questions that you would like me to ask that I haven't asked yet. Okay. Well, I think you said that I was kind of a diplomatic, more diploma, uh, <laughs> diplomatic than you are. I would say that maybe it's my faith in God that I'm a Christian. And so I think of this differently. When I was young, I don't think like that. I take the skepticism as negative and uh, try to hit back or whatever. But then I think the way you look at it after you read the Bible, you believe in God, then uh, you take criticism as almost like adding power to your momentum and you get more momentum to move on. And you are aware of the skepticism or the criticism that you have already been confronted with. That's the way I look at it. And yeah, I just want to supplement that. Cool. Thanks. So what can we expect next from the Victoria Harbor Group? <laughs> well, I hope in the next uh, few months, we can announce the site of the first international charter city and then announce the plan to build it and announce the plan to fundraise. Great. Thanks for coming on the show. And thanks for the very in-depth discussions and I didn't expect it to be so in-depth and long, but I enjoy it because it gave me the opportunities to explain more about what we intend to do. And I think I'll go back and discuss with our core team members so that we can kind of work on the detailed concept of what our international charter city will do so as to make the public understand exactly what we will deliver in the future. And I think that would be very important when we announce the uh, 
the first site of the international charter city in a few months time. And thanks for the help uh, of this uh, thinking process. Yeah, great. Thank you. And it's been an honor to work with you. And I've seen a lot of charter cities projects, and I think this can potentially be one of the most impactful, Where, which is why I'm really excited to work with the team and see what we can get done. Yeah. And thanks. Uh, it's a pleasure and also an honor to have you on board and working together with us. We should just move on. And I always say, go Hong Kongers, go. <laughs> yes, go Hong Kongers, go. Yes. Great. Thanks. Thank you, Mark. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast.